You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Mosul and the Islamic State. In the early weeks and months of Daesh controlling Mosul, the city functioned, but this was an illusion. We lived through hunger. We lived through pain. We lived through separation, through torment. The organization would execute the youth, hang them on electricity poles, and would forbid their relatives from removing their bodies from the poles. I remember the oppression of Daesh, the killing of people, forced displacement, violence, devastation of the city. And one of the most high-profile and horrific attacks was the Camp Spiker massacre. We did not take it as seriously as we should. Um, they did give assurances that Xinjiang would be protected, and, and that was not the case when ISIS came. It fell within very short time. We are talking about this in one hour of fighting. I must warn our listeners that what they are about to hear are the details of a genocide. The elderly woman that they didn't want for sex, they also executed them, and there is at least one mass grave. Boys were to be used as soldiers uh, in, in various ISIS fights in Syria and Iraq, and a lot of them got killed for girls. They were put into ISIS slavery machine. I've personally sit down with girls who were over the age of 9 or, or 10 who were uh, raped. Almost any crime you can think of happened in Sinjar. Daesh is responsible for genocide against groups in areas under its control. After capture, the Yazidi women and children were then divided, according to the Sharia, amongst the fighters of the Islamic State. Part 2. Silence. When we describe life under the Islamic State as hell, I hope our listeners now have some idea of the horrors that people, like you, Omar, faced every day for years. It was hell. And it is important to remember that we have only spoken about one city, Mosul and the surrounding area. Do not forget that the Islamic State and its peak controlled 100,000 square kilometers of territory across Iraq and Syria. This includes major cities like Raqqa, Derzur in Syria, and Mosul, Ramadi, and Fallujah in Iraq. Millions of people suffered under its occupation. We have told a lot of untold stories so far. But some of the most important are of mostly resistance. Everyday people who rebelled against Daesh, those who undermined and sabotaged the Islamic State, and probably the most courageous of all, everyday people who simply refused to participate in the Islamic State's activities. What you did as Mosulai was a really key part of the Maslawi resistance, of Mosul's underground resistance. Daesh. Sure, but I was only one of many people who were resisting Daesh. At the time, I often felt alone. As Mosul, I, I felt like I was alone trying to do an impossible task. But then I would witness other examples of Mosul resistance, and later I learned that there were many others who, in their own way, were pushing back against Daesh. One of the most inspiring stories was of a young Mosul woman. She was only 18 years old, and she was secretly teaching children in her neighborhood. 
I know of many Mosulis who helped Yazidis escape. And they knew that if Daesh caught them, they would all be put to death. I always think about the day when two teachers were publicly executed because they refused to teach the Islamic State school curriculum. This is how I regularly learned of other parts of the underground resistance, the worst possible way. We would see them being publicly executed. You've touched on something very important there, Omar. What you did and what others like you did was extraordinary. To resist in whatever form that takes in the face of terrors and dangers that people just cannot comprehend takes courage that most people can be thankful they will never need to demonstrate in their lives. These are the stories we rarely hear because these people, well, they not only live in dangerous corners of the world and they work secretly, but frankly, they don't tend to survive very long. What was fascinating to me is that the people in mostly resistance had different ways of understanding the problem. For me, I saw what Daesh was doing as a war on history. They were trying to erase mostly history in every possible way by destroying buildings, monuments, books, and people. At the same time, Daesh were trying to transform the present to create the future they wanted. This is how I understood the problem. And so, my choice was to resist by recording our mostly history and exposing the realities of everyday life under the Islamic State. I felt like I had an advantage that the rest of the world didn't have. My advantage was that I was living in Mosul. I saw these people, the members of Daesh, for what they were, not what Daesh propaganda presented them to be. So, when the world saw an Islamic State video, they saw a fighter looking tough and brave. He would stare into the camera and threaten the world. But what I would watch and think to myself, I know that guy. He lives down the street. He is an idiot and a coward. That was my advantage. And I never wanted to lose that advantage. So I told as many people as I could, as Mosul I. But I need people to know that the most important resistance to Daesh was by everyday Mosulis. Their simple acts of civil disobedience made the biggest difference. In the last episode, we heard how important the education system was to Daesh. They put a lot of work into their education curriculum. But Mosulis would refuse to send their kids to those schools. No matter the threats, no matter the punishments, most Mosulis kept their children at home. They resisted in other powerful ways too. For example, the Friday prayer is a tradition in Mosul and everyone attends. During the time of Daesh, the mosques were always nearly empty. People just stayed in their homes. In fact, in private, Mosulis began to refer to mosques as the house of Daesh or in Arabic, Beit Daesh. It was replaced from Beitullah into Beit Daesh as a reference to how Daesh humiliated the house of God. And I think so many people would not be aware that this was happening. 
it once again highlights the myths and misunderstandings that persist about the people of Mosul. That even those who may concede that the situation facing Maslawis was impossible will still insist, oh, but ultimately they accepted the Islamic State. Generally speaking, that is nonsense, and it highlights their ignorance of the realities on the ground. There is something I need you to understand about the people of Mosul. When the people of Mosul say, we don't have a dog in this fight, they mean it. And there is nobody who can force them to do anything when they decide to disobey. There is no power on the face of this earth that can force them to obey. The Mosulis decided that we didn't bring Daesh here. So everyone that contributed to this mess, they should take them out. All we would do as civilians is live and survive. Our survival was our first act of resistance. The mostly mindset was that no matter what happens, you won't break us. And the civil disobedience of average Mosulis, that was a daily message to Daesh that we don't want you here. And one day, you will be removed and we will do what we will always do. We will start again. From the moment the Daesh was removed from Mosul in 2017, the underground Musulawi resistance emerged as the heart, the main driver of the pursuit of justice, the rebuilding of the city, and the rehabilitation of its people. Now to do that, the Maslawi resistance had to survive the Battle of Mosul, and, in many ways, the military operations that saw Daesh routed from Mosul in July 2017 were just as devastating to Maslawis and to the city as the occupation itself. Yes, and one day, Haroro, we will tell the story of the Battle of Mosul. It deserves to be told properly, from a Mosul perspective. But right now, we must look to the present and the future. Mosulis are once again looking to rebuild their lives, heal the wounds, and create a better future. Let's start with the pursuit of justice for the victims of ISIS. Chief Prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan QC, has spoken eloquently about the importance of the pursuit of justice for victims of Daesh crimes. The resolution of the Security Council in September 2017 and the deployment of my team in October 2018 to Iraq marked an important moment. It marked the unanimous determination by the United Nations Security Council that justice and accountability was a key component if the horrors of Daesh were to be exposed and if the rights of survivors and victims to justice was to be achieved. Words are not enough. Action is needed. Courage is needed. And the courage that I applaud first and foremost are the survivors. This tyranny of Daesh, which seeks conformity, the tyranny of conformity that would take free people and subject them to slavery, needs to be exposed in the crucible of the courtroom. This was the mandate that UNITAD was given by the Security Council. Great work has been done. 
the announcement to the Security Council in the last report I presented before assuming my current responsibilities made it clear that acts constituting genocide had been committed by Daesh. But the full panoply of crimes requires more urgent investigations. The work of the United Nations investigative team to promote accountability for crimes committed by Daesh, or simply known as UNITAD, has been essential for trying to hold Daesh accountable for alleged crimes against humanity, including genocide. UNITAD consists of investigative field witness protection, national engagement, security and support teams, achieving justice for the victims of ISIS crimes, is about more than just accountability and demonstrating that there are consequences for such horrible crimes. The process itself, the pursuit of justice in a manner that is transparent, independent, impartial, and balanced. That is a demonstration to traumatize people, that the world is watching, it cares, and it is acting. In so many of our interviews, especially with Yazidi people, the principle of being recognized that there is a formal acknowledgement of not just what happened, of not just the violence, but that those acts of horrifying violence constitute something else, as horrific as murder and rape and slavery are under any circumstances. That what happened to the Yazidi communities actually constitutes something more, a crime against humanity, genocide. Murad Ismail, the Yazidi leader and director of the Shinjar Academy, who spoke earlier in this episode, talks here about the importance of that recognition, as well as expressing concerns that, despite all that has happened and all the promises, justice, as he describes it, remains in the shadows. Uh, the success we were, the success uh, in accountability has been, you know, only the UNITAD, which is the investigative team, still does not go to trials. Uh, Iraqi judicial system doesn't allow persecution uh, or prosecution on the base of um, of capital crimes like crimes of genocide and, and uh, crimes against humanity. It's all under terrorism court. Uh, that's the law that people uh, you know get 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 processed through. Uh, but to me, that's not. I call it justice in the shadows. This is not justice in the openness and transparency. The Yazidi genocide need to be seen. And the depth of the crimes need to be seen. You know, I lived this and I know how deep it is. I think what happened to the Yazidi community in a way is unparalleled to anything happened. I think genocides can be very harsh in terms of numbers, but I think the way the Yazidi women, for example, and the Yazidi children were treated and the community as a whole were treated is just um, a global scale crime. So we would have wanted an accountability to take place, a system that will persecute ISIS on the base of uh, of the war crimes, crimes against humanity and, and genocide, which didn't take place. It is very powerful to hear this. It is in everyone's interest that the crimes against Yazidis are recognized as genocide. I want to make something very clear. Describing the attacks on Yazidis as genocide doesn't diminish the crimes that Daesh committed against Sunnis, Shias, Turkmen, Christian, or anybody else. This is not about saying who suffered more or less. It is recognizing 
the reality of what happened, acknowledging and prosecuting this genocide further reinforce the depravity of the Islamic State movement. In fact, it helps to raise attention to Daesh's crimes against other people. The Yazidis are not the first people on Iraq's soil to be targeted for genocide. Without recognition of previous attempts to commit genocide, there is little hope for preventing the next genocide. It also serves as a warning of the genocidal intent that is inherent to the Islamic State movement. It is in the group's DNA. It is a source of pride and prestige for it. And so genocidal actions are an ever-present potential wherever this group may emerge in the world. Now, justice is one very important pathway to a better future in Mosul. But there are, of course, many more. And this podcast has been about Maslawi perspectives of their most recent history. Of equal, probably greater importance for us, was to use this platform to go directly to Maslawis and ask them a simple question. What do you think your community needs to rebuild? Civil society was highlighted by almost everyone we spoke to as the key to pushing against violent extremism and political corruption. Yet, support for Mosul's vibrant civil society has declined since Daesh was removed from the city. Here is Rida Al-Shamri talking about what he thinks Mosul needs to recover. After the military defeat of ISIS in Iraq and in Syria, I think a lot of Western and maybe also because of the COVID thing now, uh, Western states have uh, more have different things now at, at their priority list than than just support the civil society in Iraq or Syria or other places. But I say uh, now that the, uh, the radicals have rose again in Iraq. And this time, uh, the, the activists who, who fought against ISIS are very scattered, very scared, uh, very dysfunctional. They, they are not as functional as they were before because of a lot of reasons. And they do, really do, need the help of the Western. We still have hope that we need a lot of work to at least go back to the point after, just after uh, defeating ISIS. Investment, encouraging Mosuli entrepreneurs, rebuilding the city's business culture, these are all seen by young Mosulis as crucial for transforming hope into real opportunities. So uh, if, uh, the, the commun- if anyone wants to help, they just need to invest here in the city uh, to give us more opportunities for the youth, for whoever seeks for a job, for help, for a new experience. Um, this can help us a lot. And actually, you can see even the teenagers now, I, I see like... Um, a lot of boys, 16 and 17, they're, they're you know, trying to, to be a part of this uh, community, the entrepreneurship community. They, um, they want to be uh, programmers, web developers, and stuff like this. And I really like it. I, I love this awareness that the, the, those generations, the new gen- upcoming generations having. That was Asma Khalid, a Maslawi entrepreneur. We asked her whether things were improving for women in Mosul. We have a lot of restrictions in everything. Uh, whatever you do, they just make it so complicated and so hard to be done. And uh, I really don't like this in Mosul. 
in the community of Mosul, not the city, but the, the people who are living in Mosul. So after ISIS, I think they they become better. They have a better understanding. They, they give uh, more freedom to women. But still, we need a lot of awareness. So I remember first time after I came back to Mosul, it was like um, after less than a year after the uh, ISIS. So um, I had I was working uh, in um, in an office and I had a video talking in English about uh, some topic and it was published on Facebook. So many people saw the the video and they were just like the post and they were like, oh my God, she is a girl and she's on Facebook. She's from Mosul and here in Mosul, she posted her video. Well, I didn't post it. The the um, those people just posted and I didn't even have an idea that it was posted on a Facebook page. But uh, I was just looking uh, at the comments and a lot of them like, oh my gosh, she's a Muslim, what she, she has done. And uh, even my sister's friends, they used to mention them in the comments and say, oh my God, this is your sister. She's in a post on Facebook. Everybody's looking and watching at your sister. And so I was like, I haven't done anything wrong. Here is a young, proud Mosley woman with aspiration to be a journalist. And she told us that she believes education will be crucial for a brighter future. And as a journalist, she explained that a transparent and fact-based media must be allowed to flourish if Mosul is to recover and rebuild. Youth are the core of this society, so the renewal will come from them. The most important thing is education. We want to rebuild Mosul on the foundation of education. Every person inside the city has his or her own particular role. And my role in the city's revival is to transmit the truth and transmit the facts for our society. Any problem that exists inside the society, I, as a journalist or media person, I try to shed light on it in the hope that we may be able to find a solution for it, to help to be rid of it or to reduce it. Many Maslawis we spoke to highlighted the importance of how issues are perceived as one of the first steps in overcoming sectarian and other identity issues. Here is Samad Altai. Don't speak about the existence of a problem of sectarianism. Rather, speak about the existence of a problem of electricity, of power, power supplies, salt water in Basra, poverty, rampant corruption. Do not say that there is no Shi'i corruption or Sunni corruption, and that there is no Sunni electricity or Shi'i electricity, and that there are no mistakes in the Sunni administration or the Shi'i administration. All have been facing these Iraqi problems. This is something occurring in Iraq, and it is difficult for it to occur in other countries with this sectarian and cultural diversity like ours. Here, we are facing huge societal transformations, huge cultural transformations. The transformations occurring in Iraq are opportunities to reshape and redirect Iraq's trajectory. And the young Maslawis we spoke to expressed excitement for the opportunity to shape their future. Yes, let's listen to what other young Muslims have to say about their hopes for their lives and Mosul's future. Restoring this peaceful coexistence. 
In order for us to restore life to Mosul, we do so by working with the patriotic Mosulese spirit, which is far removed from sectarian and partisan division. Life will return to Mosul when the terrorist thinking is changed and the sleeper cells of Daesh inside the city are caught. My role as an individual from the city of Mosul is that I should always stand for coexistence and restoring peace to the city. Placing the cultured ideas against the hateful addresses. How can we restore life to Mosul? Through rebuilding the destruction that arose in Mosul and through the community staying together and interacting. Life will be restored through connecting the people to the outside world and opening commerce and tourism for Mosul. Our role as youth is that each person within his or her specialty should try to bring about change inside the city and make it a better place. Having spaces for culture to flourish is so important. It is a way of building our identity as Mosulis, and the music is very powerful. Everyone knows and feels that. But it's especially powerful in Mosul because ISIS hated the music, as Amin tells us here. Uh, during ISIS, from the city, as you said, the, the eye of the storm, we were posting until I lost all the instruments and I was escaped. I was escaping from ISIS. I lost even our family house for six months in the city. So it was always connected because having music in the city of Mosul during ISIS, ISIS is still there. And that, that was the biggest dream. Like it's, it's the biggest revenge, you know, like because I just realized that how it's effective. The music are so effective um, on the people who know the meaning of the music. So it was effective on the Iraqis as an Iraqi on the international, um, let's say, uh, opinion about the city of Mosul and about the Mosulis. Restoring a shared Maslawi identity that unites across religious, ethnic and tribal lines was consistently highlighted as essential for socially and culturally rehabilitating the city. To restore life to Mosul, we must revive it, protect the historic sites, and restore it to its previous natural state. My role in Mosul is to raise the awareness of the people and transmit the true picture of Mosul, and to document its reconstruction and convey its voice to the outside world. It is vital that people hear Maslawis themselves saying this. I think that there is a tendency for people to dismiss the importance of cultural reconstruction efforts including the rebuilding of landmarks and symbols, but also supporting community events and messaging campaigns that help to construct and reinforce these shared identities. They're often seen as nice but not necessary, a bonus, rather than an essential pillar of preventing the resurgence of groups like Daesh. Also, this type of work can't be done from the other side of the world. Policymakers in DC and London, advertising creatives from New York and Sydney, or even civil society groups sitting in capital cities, but not from the community itself. They aren't going to cut it. These efforts need to be designed, led, and implemented by locals. Community events, development projects, the restoration of cultural symbols, and messaging campaigns, 
This creates opportunities for dialogue and engagement. This is very important for healing psychological and social wounds. The Islamic State understands the importance of projecting their competitive system of meaning to shape the population's identity, to influence their attitudes and behaviours, and to change the way people see themselves and others. Well, outcompeting the Islamic State's system of meaning requires that it is not only dismantled, that it's delegitimized, exposed for its hypocrisy and lies, but it requires locals to be given the knowledge, resources and space to lead efforts to project and champion their own shared system of meaning, their own shared identities that can help to unite fractured communities at a collective social level but also contribute to individual psychological and emotional healing after living through such unimaginable traumas. Locals from within these communities see this as important. And hearing everyday Maslawis talk about how valuable this is to them, how they want to be responsible for contributing their own unique identities and perspectives to that collective effort, to the cultural rehabilitation, is so important, and it must be harnessed. Responsibility is a key word here. There are many actors that have a stake in Mosul. But listen to the sense of personal responsibility. These Mosulis feel for the city's future. We must protect and empower that, not interfere or abandon them. In order to restore life to Mosul, every person among us must begin his or her work and accomplish it. In this way, of course, life will return to Mosul. As this mother said to me, there is a belief that this is a generational struggle, that the divisive forces of sectarianism and the destructive forces of extremism must be confronted by every generation. My role as a mother is to follow up with my children so that I raise a generation that strives to rebuild Mosul's future. The generational struggle for a better future is inspiring, there's no doubt about it. But Mosul as a city, Maslawis as a population, they also need to grapple with the history. There is deep generational traumas in the population. Yes, of course. We must not forget this history. We must not be fearful. We must do what is right and necessary, even if it is difficult and takes a long time. I remain very active in Mosul civil society, especially with the youth. And after the period of Daesh, many people see now as the best opportunity to build something better. And there is an energy and an activism among the youth. Ali Baroudi, who is a university lecturer in Mosul, expressed a similar sentiment. So a lot of youth, a lot of young people in Mosul, and that's one of the most optimistic things that I I see around. They are not afraid. When people warn them, be careful, uh, things may change in the future. But they say, no, it's better to die once than being silent and die 100 times a day. The youth are, are, uh, are no longer afraid. All of that energy, courage, and sense of responsibility will be needed to honestly confront our past. We need to accept 
and own it. Only then can we learn from it while not being burdened and chained to it. Chief Prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan, said it perfectly. But the real raison d'etre of history, to learn from the past, so we're not condemned to commit or to fall victim of the same crimes in the future. I think we can all agree with that, but we've been here before. And I'm not just talking about Mosul or even Iraq. The world has been here before. I mean, how many times in the last 100 years has the world witnessed the oppression of people by an authoritarian regime, torture, or genocide? We've heard never again a lot over the years. As an historian, I naturally draw historical parallels between our experiences in Iraq and especially in Mosul and the struggles against authoritarianism by other people in history. I will think a lot about how those lived through war and genocide, but also how the world viewed them and responded to their struggle. I will think about different people across Europe living under Nazi occupation or later under communist Soviet rule. I would think about more recent examples too, the genocide of people in Rwanda and Bosnia in the 1990s, or the people of Afghanistan living under the brutal Taliban regime. In many ways, Mosulis are part of a long arc of history, a history where some people are seen by the world and helped, while other people are ignored or later abandoned. I struggle to understand it. At some point, one needs to confront some very difficult questions. What makes the world pay attention and be responsive to some people, and less so with other people? Why are some populations seen as complicit with the evil that rules them, while others are seen as subjects and victims, and worthy of attention, worthy of being saved? In Persuade or Perish, which was published in 1948, the Deputy Director of the Office of War Information during World War II, Wallace Carroll, reflected on the importance of empathy with those people living under Nazi occupation and used these reflections to remind the next generation of policymakers and strategic communicators to keep those lessons in mind at the dawn of the Cold War. I know there is a passage from Persuade or Perish that particularly resonated with you. Could you read it for us, Omar? Across the channel in those days were the people who had been beaten or cozened or tricked into temporary servitude. We never lost faith in them. We never abandoned them to their oppressors. We gave them such sympathy and support as we could. We told them we knew that they were with us and that when the day came, they would stand with the forces of freedom. And they did. Today, an iron curtain separates us from peoples who would be free. And there are some among us who would abandon them. Let us remember the other peoples who were overrun but never conquered. And let us hold aloft the torch of hope like the goddess at our gates to tell the hungry and the oppressed that after the darkness and the storm they will find liberty and peace. Given everything that we've covered in this series, but also 
tragically what's happened in Afghanistan in the wake of the US and Allied withdrawal, more than 70 years after that was published, and it still resonates as a reminder of the importance of empathy, of seeing the world through the eyes of others, and not just talking big about values, but actually acting on them. After everything that has happened, after decades of dictatorship, war, sanctions, more war, terrors, and insurgencies, at each moment of hope and opportunity, when that window has opened just a little, mostly is tried. We tried to achieve something better with that freedom. Of course, we have not been perfect. Of course, we have made mistakes. There have been some among us that have welcomed evil. There are some among us that have committed evils, but they are a minority. We have had monsters too, maybe more than our fair share. We can't allow ourselves to be chained to our past, but if we don't learn from it, we will repeat it. I just need our listeners to know that we tried, and we will keep trying. The history that we covered in this series was all about exploring those complicated human struggles. We also explored that history ultimately to get to this point, to the present. I hope that when people listen to this podcast, when they go back to the start and listen to it again, they can return to that history and see it for the first time. They will now see that history from a different perspective through the eyes of those who were there. And I hope it will help people to think about what is needed now to shape a better future. Thank you, Omar. Uh, Any final words? Just one thing. Please, don't give up on Mosul and its people. You've been listening to Mosul and the Islamic State, brought to you by the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Mosul and the Islamic State is hosted and co-produced by Omar Mohammed, written and produced by Harar Ingram, with audio editing by Andrew Mines. The music featured at the beginning of each episode is The Curve, which was written and performed by the Maslawi musician Amin Mokdad. If you're interested in finding out more about the research that is featured in this podcast, please check out the ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement, published by Hearst and Oxford University Press, The Long Jihad, and a variety of other ISIS-related studies on the Program on Extremism website. And for all of Omar Muhammad's reporting as Mosul I, please visit mosul-i.org.